Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masterson. Today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the UAW strike and the possibility that two of the Democratic Party's main constituencies, unions and environmentalists, could be on different sides as the pro-union Biden administration finds itself at odds with the UAW over investments in the Inflation Reduction Act for EV batteries and EV vehicles. Since those policies have spurred worries amongst the 400,000-member UAW about losing tens of thousands of auto assembly jobs because producing an electric car takes one-third fewer workers than producing a gas-powered one. Joining us is Stephen Greenhouse, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, who was previously a reporter for the New York Times, where he covered labor and the workplace for 19 years. He's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present and Future of American Labor. And we'll discuss his article at The Atlantic, Biden's Labor Climate Dilemma. Then we'll look into the trillions wasted by the military-industrial complex for big-ticket items that has the Navy with fewer ships and the Air Force with fewer aircraft that are already proving to be obsolete since the war in Ukraine is dominated by cheap off-the-shelf drones as a new global arms race has the US, China, Russia, Iran, Israel and others rushing to develop remote control vehicles operating with AI. Joining us is Roberto Gonzalez, a cultural anthropologist at San Jose State University, whose work focuses on science, technology and society, militarization and culture, processes of social and cultural history, and ethics in social science. He has authored several books, including American Counterinsurgency, Human Science and the Human Terrain, Militarizing Culture, Essays on the Warfare State, Connected, How a Mexican Village Built Its Own Cell Phone Network, and War Virtually, The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future. We'll discuss his recent article at The Conversation, Drones Over Ukraine, What the War Means for the Future of Remotely Piloted Aircraft in Combat. Then finally we'll investigate the tragic loss of life in Libya from dams that burst, sending a hundred foot high tsunami that swept through the coastal city of Derna, killing 11,000 with 10,000 missing. Joining us is Ali Abdallah Ratif Hamida, a professor and founding chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of New England, whose scholarship focuses on power, agency, and anti-colonial resistance in North Africa, especially modern Libya. He's the author of The Making of Modern Libya, Forgotten Voices, Power and Agency in Colonial and Postcolonial Libya, and Genocide in Libya, Shah, A Hidden Colonial History. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. 
And joining us now is Stephen Greenhouse, who's a senior fellow at the Century Foundation, who was previously a reporter for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014, where he covered labor and the workforce for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. He's the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker, and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. And he has an article at The Atlantic, Biden's Labor Labor climate dilemma. Balancing the interests of unions and environmentalists might not be possible forever. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Greenhouse. Nice to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the strike that's underway now by the UAW, as you have framed it, is alarming for the Democrats because it's pitting two important Democratic constituencies against each other, unions and environmentalists. Yes and no. Uh, in way, you know, in my view, the strike is about many more things other than the climate and the green transition. It's mainly about you know wages not beginning to keep up with inflation at the same time that GM, Ford, and Stellantis, the three Detroit automakers, are making record profits. At the same time, they've been uh, you know they've raised the pay of their of their CEOs by over forty percent over the past few years. And, you know, the unions, the workers are also pissed off that inflation is very high and they no longer get a cost of living adjustment. They're also they've been upset for years and years about a concession they made 15 years ago where the automakers said that to remain uh, to keep these factories open, we need two tier, a two tier wage system where new workers are get paid much, much less. So I think those are the real factors that are fueling the strike is, is that is pay and they feel lack of respect. Now, a second issue is the industry's move towards electric vehicles, and certainly the Biden administration is seeking to speed that transition because it wants to, you know, move the nation and the world faster to a green, sustainable economy. And that's created tensions between the union on one hand, which worries that these new electric vehicle plants and these new electric battery plants will be non-union. And uh, the Biden administration is trying to um, you know, speed the transition along, realizing that you know, some of these battery factories, at least first, might not be unionized, and they're trying to kind of nudge things along to make it easier to unionize, to, to help them pay higher wages. And the union, of course, is saying, you know, you're not doing enough. Um, but you know, I, I see J.D. Vance, the um, demagogic senator from Ohio, is really blasting the union and blasting Biden saying, you know, you're going way, way too much along with the green transition. You know, we shouldn't be moving to electric cars. What's the rush? You know, why worry so much about the climate? And that's not really what this strike is about. The strike is about pay. It's about getting their fair share. It's about ending this two-tier system that leaves many workers far, far, far behind uh, the other workers. I was just reading an article saying under the two-tier system, workers begin at $18 an hour. In 2007, uh, before GM and Chrysler filed for bankruptcy, the starting pay in, in real dollars was, 19, was $19 an hour. So it was actually more 16 years ago um, that it, people started $19 then and people started $18 now. And that if people were starting, uh, if, if you know, People who started 18 now should begin at 29 now if you factor in inflation. So just they, 
you know, we used to hear in the 1970s about how great auto workers are paid, and no, the pay is no longer so great. I mean, you have some auto workers being paid $18 an hour, which is what, you know, a little more than some McDonald's workers are making. So something's broken. But in your article uh, at The Atlantic, Stephen Greenhouse, Biden's labor climate dilemma balancing the interests of unions and environmentalists might not be possible forever. You point out that in June, after the White House announced a $9.2 billion loan to the Ford Motor Company to help it produce electric vehicles, Sean Fain, the head of UAW, said, why is Joe Biden's administration facilitating this corporate greed and taxpayer money? And there is an explanation, though, as you point out later in the article, that under the IRA, the omnibus bill that had all these green provisions and all of this money, what happened was that at one point in the negotiations over the bill, Biden sought to give preference to unionize EV factories by proposing an extra 4500 incentive to consumers who bought union-made electric vehicles. But Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia blocked the provision. And needless to say, Toyota operates a large non-union plant in West Virginia. So once again, this villain comes back, this guy that's the one-man wrecking crew for the Democrats, oh, well, along with cinema. So it's a man and a woman wrecking crew. So, so Fain did write that letter in June. He was very angry that the Biden administration, seeking to speed the transition to electric vehicles, made this $9.2 billion loan to Ford and to Ford's South Korean battery partner. And I believe it's true that some people in the Biden administration are, are not as keyed in and enthusiastic about unions as Biden is. And I don't think as much as Biden about what can we do to help unions and assure fair wages. And I think that at the time they made that loan, they weren't focusing enough on that. I think Fain kind of tried to uh, send a shot across the bow to say, look, guys, look, Biden and administration, you've got to really focus if you're going to be lending all this money to speed the transition to a green economy, you've got to work harder to make sure that it's easier to unionize, that you somehow try to favor unionized places, you try to make sure wages are higher. And that message really got out there so that when the Department of Energy in late August announced this $15.5 million, $15. billion uh, program of grants and funds and loans, to speed the transition to, you know, to revamp, retool factories so they could uh, make electric vehicles. Um, the Department of Energy said that bidders, the companies that have higher wages, that have collective bargaining, will get higher scores, will be preferred when uh, these grants are awarded. So between June, when Sean Fain sent that, made that statement criticizing the administration, to just three months later, just two months later, August, the administration really got on the ball and became much more attentive and is trying hard to make sure that the jobs created with the $370 billion uh, under the Inflation Reduction Act to speed the transition to a green economy, that you know, Biden wants to help make sure that those jobs are union jobs and pay well. So is there any resistance, though, on the part of the UAW to electric vehicles because they're easy to make, aren't they? They're less parts, less components. Is that in any way a factor? So I just read this big article, Ian, about the German auto industry, which is really in deep yogurt because it's been slow in the transition to green vehicles. It's fallen far behind other companies. Chinese China, which is 
pretty, you know, it was sort of ahead and, and electric vehicles are selling more and more cars in Germany. You know, uh, Daimler, Benz, BMW, Volkswagen are really worried. And they say, I'm sure the, the auto workers in Germany are worried that, hey, it's important for companies to keep up and not fall behind in electric vehicles because we'll lose market share and we might lose our jobs. And I imagine UAW leaders see that and realize, look, electric vehicles are coming. It's the wave of the future. And we got to get on board that if we move too slowly, we're going to lose market share to countries that are ahead of us in, in, in electric vehicles. And, and Sean Fain, the president of the auto workers, has said that he says, I'm not opposed to a green economy. I just want our move toward green economy or, or to, to be just, to be fair, that we have a, a, a just transition. So maybe some auto workers, you know, and then one third of auto workers back Trump in, two, in 2020, I imagine there are some auto workers who say, oh, climate change is a hoax. We don't need electric vehicles. That's all bull. But I think the people who run the, you know, people who lead the UAW and most labor leaders in general understand that there's a climate crisis, that it's not a climate hoax. And that we as a nation, you know, our industries, industries around the world have to get with it and help, you know, transition to a greener, more sustainable, less carbon dependent economy. Well, is there a problem, though, within the ranks of the unions? You just alluded to it, Stephen, that according to a 2020 exit poll, 56 percent of voters in union households nationwide backed Biden and 40 percent backed Trump. And the UA estimates that one third of its members voted for Trump in 2020 and in 2016. So, I mean, I'm sure your listeners, you know, see the polls that uh, you know only what 36 percent of people uh, support of how how Biden's doing on the economy. They say Trump did a better job on the economy. So, I'm sure some of you know, I'm sure some members of the United Auto Workers feel the same way and will be sympathetic to Trump. And Biden's trying very, very, very hard to make the case, you know, to the to the nation, including to labor unions and union members that, you know, he's trying to build a fair economy. He's supporting unions. That inflation is down. That unemployment is near the lowest level in 50 years. That uh, right now, for most workers, wages are increasing faster than than inflation. And and Trump has really shown his anti-union, anti-worker colors pretty spectacularly in recent days. He's, you know, told the auto workers that the union leadership is bad for them. He said union members should stop paying their dues. Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, has pointed out that Trump a few years ago said it would be a good idea if auto factories in Michigan move to lower wage states to help make, help stay competitive. And Fain has says, you know, that, you know, someone who says that is not a friend of workers is not a friend of labor. So while Sean Fain uh, wanting to get more out of the Biden administration to help ensure that electric vehicle, vehicle factories are unionized and well-paid. You know, while he's held off on endorsing uh, Biden, you know, there's no way in the world Sean Fain and the ORW is going to endorse Donald Trump. And there are 400,000 members in the UAW, and uh, President Biden made it clear that he supports the strike, doesn't he? Didn't he? I mean, just... Uh, he said that this is really about fairness and that the UAW, back in 2009 after the crash, when GM and Chrysler went bankrupt, they made concessions. And now the big three are rolling in dough, but they're not sharing it with the workers. And they're, you know, the CEOs are making, have massive pay packages. So 
Biden's pointed that out. So do you think he's repaired whatever doubts there are amongst the UAW members? So yesterday, uh, Biden made an exceptionally pro-union statement for a president. You know, in the middle of a strike, he really basically said, I think the workers are right. You know, historically, most presidents try to remain scrupulously neutral in strikes or else, you know, early, you know, early last century, they often clearly sided with companies. So Biden said the companies have record profits. They should share their record profits better with the workers. And it's time to have record record uh, contracts. So that's really an unusually strong pro-union statement. And I think, you know, Biden wants to strike over. He wants to put pressure on the companies to be more generous. He doesn't want the strike to go on too long because it could hurt the economy. And, you know, for political reasons, he's trying to show he's right for a worker. Um, and, and Trump has criticized the strike. He thinks it's a bad idea. So, um, so um, you know, Biden has really tried to show his, his pro-union colors. So what is the chance then of a deal? What do you think, Stephen? It's really hard to know, Ian. It's really hard to know. Um, you know to my mind, Song Sain has done a great job making his case that the workers deserve more, that uh, they've fallen behind inflation when the company's making record profits. He's made a good case that they made great concessions, you know, huge concessions 15 years ago during the Great, great Recession, and that, you know, it's time to rescind some of those concessions. But on the other hand, Sean Fain has been kind of demanding the sun, moon, and the stars. He says, not only do we want a 40% raise and an end to two-tier and uh, reinstituting the cost of living allowance, but we want to restore the pensions of old. We want to restore the health coverage of old. We want to restore the job banks of old that would pay a lot of money to workers who are laid off. And that's asking a whole, whole, whole lot. And, this, you know, I'm sorry to say, but there's no way in the world he's going to get all that stuff. And I, I worry that um, some of the workers expect him to deliver on all those things, and, and he might feel he has to stay out until he can deliver on a lot of those things. And I think that could be the formula for a long strike. And hopefully, uh, Fain will be able to do what Sean O'Brien of the Teamsters did in facing UPS. Fain got some important concessions, some important gains, and said, we've won. You know, we've won. You know, by threatening strike, by mobilizing our members, you know, we made huge gains, and I'm hoping that, you know, the uh, order makers will uh, make some more concessions, will cough up some more money, so much so that Fane will be able to honestly say, look, we can't get everything we demanded. It's important that we put these issues on the table, but with these three or four things we want on wages, on COLA, on ending two-tier, uh, we, we have a victory, and we can, you know, celebrate, and, and we've helped put these issues on the map. We've helped publicize income inequality to the to to the nation and um, we'll try to gain more win more things in the next round of negotiations and hopefully that can all happen in the next week or two but I worry it will take a month or two or three or four so just in the last minute then Stephen if the UIW and Sean Fain are successful and they can declare victory even if they don't get everything they're asking for what kind of impact will that have on these right-to-work states that have these plants from BMW, Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz, and Toyota? So uh, the past few years, the past few decades have not been a time of uh, triumph for the auto workers. There was a horrible corruption scandal, plus 
you know, they made some big concessions. So when the UAW is trying to unionize Volkswagen in Tennessee or Nissan in Mississippi, it couldn't tell the workers, oh, we've been doing great. We've made great gains. And the workers would say, why should we bother? But I think if the UAW wins some significant gains on wages on any two tier, it could really be a selling point when they try to unionize the future battery plants, the future auto plants, EV plants that are being set up in the South. Well, Stephen Greenhouse, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Good to talk as always, Ian. Be well. You and too. Let's hope for a satisfactory end for the strike soon. Indeed. And I thank you for joining us, Stephen Greenhouse, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation who was previously a reporter for the New York Times from 1983 to 2014, where he covered labor in the workplace for 19 years. He also served as a business and economics reporter and a diplomatic and foreign correspondent. And is the author of The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker and Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present and Future of American Labor. And he has an article at The Atlantic, Biden's Labor Climate Dilemma. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the trillions wasted by the military-industrial complex for big-ticket items. That has the Navy with fewer ships in the Air Force, with fewer aircraft that are already proving to be obsolete. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Roberta Gonzalez, who's a cultural anthropologist at San Jose State University, whose work focuses on science, technology, and society, militarization and culture, processes of social and cultural control, and ethics in social science. He has authored several books, including American Counterinsurgency, Human Science and the Human Terrain, Militarizing Culture, Essays on the Warfare State, Connected, How a Mexican Village Built Its Own Cell Phone Network, and War Virtually, The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future. And he has a recent article at The Conversation, Drones Over Ukraine, What the War Means for the Future of Remotely Piloted Aircraft in Combat. Welcome to Background Briefing, Roberto Gonzalez. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And clearly, the war in Ukraine has become a huge wake-up call for the U.S. military and, I suppose, by extension, the military-industrial complex. And our military-industrial complex, as Eisenhower warned about and coined the very term, has always wanted, instead of building a Timex, they want to build a Rolex. They want a gold plate and make things incredibly complicated and expensive. And it's reached the point now where the Air Force has fewer aircraft than almost in their entire history uh, because the, the, the $1.7 trillion F-35 program is so expensive they can only afford a few of them. And the same with these big ships now, uh, particularly aircraft carriers, which cost billions and that the Chinese could sink in minutes. So the drones, on the other hand, as you point out in your article, the Ukrainians are making them literally out of the back room, you know, throwing together bits of components and stuff off the shelf. 
and proving to be very effective and very cheap. So am I correct in detecting this massive shift uh, in military technology and in the way that our defense budget operates? Yeah, I don't think there's any question uh, that we're at a turning point right now for the reasons that you've pointed out. Um, drones, although they've been around for you know a number of decades now, um, what's happened in Ukraine is, uh, is, is significantly different because as you've uh, mentioned, we're talking now about uh, drones, commercial, commercial drones that can be purchased online for a few hundred dollars um, that can be outfitted um, you know, with grenades or other kinds of improvised explosives. Um, and so the, um, historically, the military uh, here in the United States you know, has relied on a very complex procurement process, contracts with the traditional, uh, if you want, uh, the usual suspects in terms of the, uh, the defense companies that are involved, you know, the Lockheed Martins, the uh, Boeings and so forth. Um, but what's happened with drones is, uh, I think of it as a kind of democratization uh, of, of weaponry, uh, so that now literally for a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars, uh, you can have weapons that can, uh, you know, do some damage, limited damage in terms of the combat uses of these uh, drones, but they can, they're actually quite sophisticated uh, for what's called ISR missions, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. Um, and of course, that uh, that is is, a, is an important capacity on the battlefield. And I think the military here in the United States is is uh, is struggling to to figure out how to how to advance in this area um, because again, there are entrenched uh, procurement processes that have been around for a long time. And frankly, the companies that are developing um, these drones uh, and your technologies are different kinds of companies. They're often based. Uh, out here on the West Coast, uh, a, n- a good number of them are in Silicon Valley. Uh, they're not the traditional uh, players when we think of the military industrial complex. Uh, but the Pentagon has made uh, quite a bit of efforts over the past 10 years uh, to try to uh, to try to reach out to startups and tech firms uh, here in the Bay Area and um, in particular, uh, but also in places like Seattle and Austin and, and other parts of, uh, of the country with um, a vibrant tech sector. Now, this raises all kinds of questions for me, uh, ethical questions involving the weapons designers, because we typically don't think of software programmers uh, or Silicon Valley engineers, uh, you know, as as members of the military industrial complex. But uh, increasingly, I think we're finding ourselves uh, in that kind of a situation now. Well, Roberto, it's been called, hasn't it, the digital military industrial complex? It has, yes. Uh, I think there's no question that we're at a crossroads now where uh, within a few years, we may well see a very tight merger between big tech and big defense. Uh, there was a, a um, uh, one of the military's very first artificial intelligence programs was something that's come to be known as Project Maven, uh, which you may have heard of. Project Maven was a, a program contract that was basically uh, between the Department of Defense and Google. And uh, it happened really in a a secretive kind of way. Only the executives at Google really knew what was going on. And then a handful of people at Google who were working on the project. Essentially, what it was was an an artificial intelligence uh, project, a program, AI, that was able to, um, the idea was for it to do image processing from drone footage that was being uh, basically sent in from Afghanistan. Uh, This was about five years ago. 
And uh, word leaked about this program and it created an uproar in Google that um, involved a number of people deciding to quit, uh, including a man named Jack Polson, who was a senior researcher at Google at the time. And he was appalled uh, that he was basically, uh, unbeknownst to him, working on, on, uh, on one part of a weapon system uh, through this project Maven. And he actually had been in contact with him over the past few years. And he's the one that told me, don't be surprised if at some point in the future, uh, we literally see a company like Amazon acquiring uh, tech firms like Raytheon or others. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense if you think about the economic capacity and the invest investment capacity of a Google or a Microsoft uh, to start buying up some of these tech firms down the line. Well, we already know about the, the influence that Elon Musk has over the Ukraine war. He effectively has the fate of Ukraine in his hands, and he already uh, used his power over the uh, satellite system, Starlink, uh, which the Ukrainians depend upon entirely. They're about to launch a naval attack against uh, the Russian Black Sea Fleet that were firing these caliber cruise missiles at civilian targets inside of Ukraine. And we know that Musk is buddies with Putin, and he basically pulled the plug on the satellite and the, the whole mission collapsed. And he gave a pacifist excuse saying that he didn't want to escalate the war. But the fact of the matter is if he's got that intelligence about Ukraine, the most vital intelligence about what they're doing and what they have, at the same time he's in touch with Putin, my God, that's a nightmare. He could transfer all of Ukraine's military secrets to, to Putin and, and might well be doing it. So there's this other aspect. Not only you have the digital military industrial complex, you have these drug-addled right-wing trolls like Elon Musk having the power that only in a, in a James Bond novel would some villain have. Right. Yeah, the, I mean, this really is in, in many ways. I mean, this is, again, part of the turning point um, is, is the way I see it. Uh, and you're talking about, you know, in this case, one of the wealthiest, uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world. Um, but to go back to something you raised earlier, which are the do-it-yourself drones that we see in Ukraine, you know, the other part of this issue of the dem democratization of digital uh, weaponry is that um, let's forget about states for a while. I mean, we can talk about, you know, the return to great power rivalry and and the, you know, the the uh, the way that uh, military planners are, uh, you know, obviously worried about China as well as Russia in, in a way that is very reminiscent of the Cold War. Uh, but at the other end, you know, you've got all kinds of, um, I suppose, what might be called non-state actors. Um, so, you know, groups that are not state, but maybe organized crime uh, that could also make use of these drones, uh, you know, on a shoestring budget if they so wanted to and, and wreak havoc. Uh, forget about, uh, you know, foreign foreign countries, but just imagine what might happen uh, in the United States if an extremist group of one type or another were to, you know, take th their cue from from the drone pilots of Ukraine and start uh, using those here at home. Um, those kinds of, of scenarios are, are really worrisome. And when you think about this, the really sluggish pace that, um, that Congress tends to uh, impose any form of regulation at all, uh, particularly when it comes to technologically complex systems, uh, it really should give us pause. Well, without giving Hollywood screenwriters too many ideas, Roberto, <laughs> I mean, it's a perfect assassination tool, isn't it? 
a drone with remote control munitions aboard. They have the ability to loiter. They have the ability to follow somebody. And at, a, at any specific time, they could drop the bomb or the grenade or whatever, or just crash the drone into whatever the target was. Yeah, it is really worrisome. And, I, I, you know, it's the kind of thing that, you know, on the one hand, it sounds like science fiction, but then one realizes, well, my God, the technologies are already here. Um, and, um, of course, this how does this how does a state respond to this? Uh, well, it's typically in ways that are not very <laughs> that basically clamp down on, on civil liberties and increase surveillance and and all of these other uh, factors. So that's that's a whole uh, kind of separate conversation is is um, how, you know, a, apart from trying to regulate this, how how do governments uh, try to rein in the possible misuses of these technologies in, in those kinds of ways. I want to also just mention one thing that we haven't talked about much, but I think it's really important to be thinking about as we move ahead, which is that we've been talking, if we talk about drones, for example, we've been talking about uh, what are remote controlled drones for the most part. Um, so these are not autonomous uh, weapons. They are, you know, there's typically a kind of handheld uh, device or screen that is used to pilot the drones in, for example, in the case of Ukraine. Um, but one of the big areas right now uh, of research in this industry is on equipping drones with, uh, you know, artificial intelligence uh, so that, for example, um, in an environment in which GPS has been shut down, uh, and this is happening right now in the Russian war in Ukraine, where the Russian forces have become very good at um, at basically jamming the signals of the of the remote control drones, uh, which results typically in them crashing. Um, there's a lot of work underway in creating drones for what are called GPS denied environments, where GPS has been jammed. GPS signals global positioning system, uh, and so right now there's a lot of work being done on autonomous navigation systems. Uh, using technologies like uh, like lidar, which uh, is light detection and ranging technologies, or even celestial navigation, uh, to pilot so that these drones can essentially pilot themselves uh, to their targets or for their surveillance missions. Um, once you start venturing into that territory of autonomous weapons and and uh, the the move away from remote control and towards autonomy, I think that raises a whole host of ethical questions. If you start talking about autonomous combat drones, for example, uh, who's responsible if a drone that's autonomous uh, kills someone? Uh, who bears the, the moral responsibility for that? And for me as an anthropologist, obviously those kinds of, of big social, cultural, moral questions uh, are of great interest to me, but also of great concern. Well, the switchblade uh, that the U.S. has supplied the Ukrainians with is absolutely useless. They they're throwing, they they don't use them anymore because they don't have frequency hopping and the Russians jam them. The same with the Turkish drone. Um, the Russians also jam them because it doesn't have frequency hopping. But the GPS is now jamming the HIMARS, which is a weapon that the Ukrainians have been using with some effect against Russian uh, ammunition dumps, etc., in the rear. So that is another frontier in the battle, right? As you just pointed out, how to get around the GPS jamming. Exactly. Yes, it is. And, you know, one of the companies that has been most involved in this area is, uh, I mean, we've talked about 
Elon Musk, uh, we haven't talked about Alex Karp, uh, who is the CEO of Palantir, uh, who's been Peter very- Thiel's, Peter Thiel's company. Exactly, exactly. Uh, he's been very uh, aggressive about the need to uh, develop more of these autonomous uh, uh, weapons systems. And uh, even recently had a, an op-ed in the New York Times uh, with the title uh, of America's Oppenheimer Moment, essentially making the argument that this is an arms race, this is a global arms race, and the U.S. needs to stay ahead. Therefore, let's put aside any concerns about AI, the ethics of AI, the potential um, uh, misuses of AI or, or the consequences of AI run amok. Uh, and so you do have people like uh, like CARP that have no qualms uh, about going as fast as possible with this technology, uh, even if we're not sure what the long-term consequences might be. But the ethics of this are sort of interesting. Interesting is hardly a sufficient way to describe it. But what is it then, Roberto, that makes people so upset about drones? Most of my friends on the left find them really outrageous and uh, feel they should be banned, as opposed to the guy that you just mentioned uh, from Palantir, uh, who wants to proliferate them and make them more sophisticated. But what is the ethical difference between sticking a bandit in somebody's belly or pressing a button and killing somebody by remote control? I'm not so sure there is a difference when it comes to remote control. Um, I do think there is a difference when it when it comes to autonomous uh, weapons, because in that case, you've removed, um, as they say in the industry, you've taken humans out of the loop. And I, I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding uh, from many people uh, about just what um, autonomous weapons would mean in the future. Uh, for some people, I mean, they're stuck in the mode of uh, that this, these would be Terminator, you know, killer robots with uh, with kind of self-awareness and, and so forth. Uh, but for me, the more immediate threat is that these uh, these technologies are being developed very quickly. Um, they do still rely quite a lot on, on human intervention, uh, but they're increasing the speed at which wars are being conducted. Therefore, there's a greater likelihood of error, a greater likelihood of conflict escalation, uh, and, and other problems that could come from the acceleration of the battlefield uh, as these technologies uh, are incorporated into military arsenals. Um, I, again, I don't think there's that much of a, of a difference when it comes to um, remote control drones and, you know, uh, as you said, a bullet to the body. Um, but I will say this, the United States use of drones so far uh, has been in theaters of war like Afghanistan uh, or Somalia or other countries where one's reluctant to even use the word war because it's what's happening with drones in those in those theaters of, of conflict is more akin to hunting where you've got very uh, lopsided forces, one with great technological capacity, the United States, and uh, in the case of Afghanistan, very limited uh, uh, technological capability if we think historically of the Taliban 15 years ago or, or um, or other uh, uh, groups that the United States was engaged in a war on terror against. Uh, and as a result of that, there were also huge numbers of civilian casualties, as I'm sure your listeners will know uh, in, those, in those countries, and, and there continue to be. Um, and so I think that may be one of the reasons that people have been 
in the United States anyway, so unsettled by drones uh, in the use in the war on terror because they were so imprecise. Right, uh, and the collateral damage, blowing up entire families at weddings, etc. Um, and apparently it's so bad that the drone operator sitting in an air-conditioned trailer in, outside of Las Vegas having metal problems and PTSD right. as a result. So I appreciate you joining us here today, Roberto. It's a conversation we'll continue to have. Thank you for inviting me. And again, I've been speaking with Roberto Gonzalez, who's a cultural anthropologist at San Jose State University, whose work focuses on science, technology, and society, militarization and culture, processes for social and cultural control, and ethics in social science. He has authored several books, including American Counterinsurgency, Human Science and the Human Terrain, Militarizing Culture, Essays on the Warfare State, Connected, How a Mexican Village Built Its Own Cell Phone Network, and War Virtually, The Quest to Automate Conflict, Militarize Data, and Predict the Future. And he has a recent article at The Conversation, Drones Over Ukraine, What the War Means for the Future of Remotely Piloted Aircraft in Combat. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the tragic loss of life in Libya from dams that burst, sending a 100-foot-high tsunami that swept through the coastal city of Derna, killing 11,000 with 10,000 missing. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ali Abdelatif Amida, who is a professor and founding chair in the Department of Political Science at the University of New England, whose scholarship focuses on power, agency, and anti-colonial resistance in North Africa, especially modern Libya. He's the author of The Making of Modern Libya, Forgotten Voices, Power and Agency in Colonial and Postcolonial Libya, and Genocide in Libya, Shah, A Hidden Colonial History. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ali Abdelatif Amida. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. It's good to be with you after uh, quite a hiatus. Uh, we haven't spoken for quite a while. We haven't, but um, now, of course, there's been this tragic storm that generated a lot of rainfall and two dams burst in Derna, a coastal city in the east, and 11,000 people have perished and there are 10,000 missing, presumed to be dead as well. So this is a massive catastrophe. So let's begin with the international response. Apparently, it's pretty difficult for the international community to, to help, simply because there are two Libyas, right? There's one in the east and one in the west, and they're at war with each other. And the east is controlled by this warlord Haftar, and the situation seems pretty chaotic. It is indeed, Yan, uh, because of the uh, aftermath of the um, uprising in 2011 and the many civil wars that um, has been, you know, um, uh, going on in and out for the last 11, 12 years. But also, um, it has to do with the fact that Libya became really not a, uh, an important um, 
the country and the crisis has been put in the back burner for a while and um, the attention has been shifted to other cases, including recently, even um, after this terrible, terrible flooding and human tragedy, um, we are slowly internationally are responding to it, to this crisis. And um, probably um, the Moroccan earthquake received more attention than the Libyan one. And now, um, because the, the, the death, to, the total death um, uh, numbers in 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 eastern Libya, especially the the the, uh, the city of Darna, is is increasing. I think more more people are paying attention and saying, you know, what's going on in there. But it's it has been very slow reaction, Ian, in my opinion. Well, that's I think because of the lack of governance and the legacy of Gaddafi. In the case of the Moroccan earthquake. The king, who seems to be the absolute ruler, was not in the country and the government was slow and in many ways resisting international help. So we have a picture of that, but it's very difficult to know who's in charge. And Haftar, the warlord, hasn't been seen. His prime minister has visited the scene, but they're essentially malicious, aren't they? They're not, they're not people that build cities and infrastructure. They're people that strut around with guns and steal the oil. This is only um, part of the story, Ian, in my opinion. Yes, the uh, the government that split in, inside Libya after 2011 between the two governments, one in the east, you know, Field Marshal Haftar, and, and the parliament government. The um, Currently is, is headed by an engineer by the name of Osama Hamad, and one in, in in the east and in the west, there is another government um, by um, a, called the National Unity Government, and the Prime Minister currently since 2021 is um, Mr. Abdel Hamid who is recognized by the UN, the United States, the EU, um, but at, at the same time it, it doesn't have jurisdiction or um, ability to to uh, administer. Um, beyond the city of Tripoli and and, and the part of the western region. But um, in de facto way, Libya still has two governments and the two parliaments are also still uh, acting in a way. And quite honestly, uh, uh, not only the, just the infighting, but also a lot of corruption and a lot of um, uh, schemes to hold to power and not to have uh, election, which is a national demand by Libyan public opinion. That's part of the story, Ian. The other part of the story, which is not really um, highlighted as much, in my opinion, um, since 2000, um, maybe 14, is the uh, the fact the NATO um, bombing sanctioned by the UN Security Council and the uh, Europeans who have been delegated to act because of our own um, American foreign policy have been involved by supporting different factions and trying to really uh, focus on settling scores with the Gaddafi's regime, but not to really um, uh, be serious about uh, stopping aid and, and su support and diplomatic um, um, sanctions, and at the same time 
uh, not to take responsibility for being part of the problem of the destruction of the institutions, the the um, the, uh, the lack of um, rebuilding the country and allowing the Libyan people to vote a, an accountable, um, uh, an uncorrupt government. Uh, so I think what we need to, to f- keep in mind, the blame should be both the corrupt and um, very, very, you know, um, selfish and greedy uh, groups that um, are in charge of the country. And at the same time, their supporters, uh, the EU, uh, the UN, and uh, quite honestly, our own Obama and uh, Trump and also the Biden administration, they have been kind of um, part of the problem, but they refuse to, they are in denial that uh, the Libyan have to do this or do that. Uh, the problem should be on both sides. Sure. Well, interesting enough, though, Ali, Vice President Biden, at the time of the 2011 intervention, uh, he was overruled by Obama and by Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State. Uh, Biden was against the U.S. and the U.N. intervention in Libya. And yes, as you point yes, out, yes. it's been yes, a disaster yes, ever since. Um, yes. What about, though, the storm, Daniel? It was obviously a, a severe storm, but it also hit Greece and only six people died in Greece as opposed to the 20-plus thousand in Libya and Derna. Am I correct in saying that, the, of course, the Green Mountains are right there, so a lot of rain come down from the mountains into the first dam that burst and then it then that flooded into the second dam that burst. And the city was hit by, I had read that it was a seven-meter-high wall of water. That's 22 feet high. Is that your understanding? It's been an unprecedented storm. And the only analogy we bring from our own in the United States would be the flooding that you have in California that devastated many communities and nothing really like what happened in Derna. Uh, but also the Katrina, um, you know, um, disaster in Louisiana, um, 2005, where the levees were overwhelmed and, um, uh, you know, um, the city of New Orleans was, um, you know, um, devastated because it was below sea level. I think your listeners should understand that uh, the Green Mountain is not a desert. It's a very, very, very um, lush, almost like... um, you know, there are creeks, they get a lot of rain every year. And the city of Derna's geography, its geography is very unique. This is one of the most beautiful maybe cities. That's the saddest thing uh, about this tragedy. Uh, it's partially, um, um, you know, um, the, the, the tragedy and the flooding, this, this unprecedented flooding um, it, it was 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 um, caused by... Um, you know, unprecedented storm, uh, you know, climate change, but also men, um, also, um, fact, uh, you know, human factors in, in making it really t- more, much worse than, than it was. Derna is located um, on the Mediterranean coast, and the background is the Green Mountain. And the city itself, Ian, is split by a valley. Uh, in the winter, it, it's a river. Um, but in, in, the, in the summer, it's a dry bed uh, valley, and flooding is really common. But usually, uh, the city is, is, has five bridges 
which split the eastern a part of the city, which is from the western part of the city. And the city is, is a very, very um, major small city, which is, has 100,000 people. So every winter, um, you know, um, the valley will go to the sea, will, will, uh, will become a river and go to the sea. Uh, the government, the Gaddafi government in, in the, in the mid-70s, I think, I believe in 1972, 1977, um, built two dams on um, the valley of Darna. And uh, the bigger one um, was uh, around maybe uh, 15 or, um, or so miles away from the city called Bumansur Dam. And a smaller one called the Leblad or uh, the Darna Dam outside of the city. So these two dams uh, managed to, um, you know, re regulate the flooding to, to Darna, which is very vulnerable as a city like New Orleans. But what happened is um, bad administration. Uh, too much, concern, uh, you know, centralization under Gaddafi's regime. There was no serious engineering maintenance and repair of these, and inspection of these two dams. And there were some Libyan scholars uh, and universities that warned against it. One of them uh, is in, in uh, 2022, um, at Omar al-Mukhtari University in Al-Baida, um, uh, and, and an engineer by um, the name of uh, Abdul Wanis Ashur said, you know, the dam is cracking, it needs repair. And uh, what happened is uh, in 2007, uh, a Turkish uh, company was commissioned to do the inspection and repair the dam and maintain the, the dam after all of those years. It never was able to finish it, and 2011 uprising put the country in a, in a chaotic war zone uh, situation. And after that, you know, um, uh, corruption and uh, dragging feet um, and greedy officials never, never really paid attention to uh, the possibility that flooding could be that, that big. This is the human factor. That's the, the climate uh, factor is that Libya has never seen any um, rain, um, 400 millimeters in 24 hours, the equivalent of a year, a whole year of, of rainfall in, in, in eastern Libya, which is the people were not prepared, people were not really um, ready uh, to handle it. And uh, furthermore, Ian, the, uh, the, um, uh, this incredible um, uh, rainfall caused uh, a, a tsunami-like, uh, um, forceful, uh, 40 um, meters, uh, that, you know, um, uh, fall uh, that led to flooding, overwhelmed the bigger dam, and after that was easier to, um, uh, you know, um, demolish and blow up and um, uh, um, destroy the second dam. People were asleep, and I think also the municipality in Darna and the Libyan officials were caught asleep and ill-prepared. They asked people to stay at home, and they expected the, the storm to hit them from the sea, Mediterranean Sea, and there came this tsunami-like um, force that uh, removed cars, trees, mud, rocks, 
and also rose even in an uh, apartment building up to the sixth and seventh floor. And um, right now, um, uh, you know, people were caught uh, because of this this unprecedented storm and flooding. But also there is a human responsibility and a human errors that made this crisis worse. And we don't know the, the number. Now they say um, the mayor of, 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 of Derna said it's around, um, you know, 10, 11,000. Uh, but he said also that there are 10,000 are missing, some of them under the rubble. Some under, um, uh, you know, were uh, completely families were moved to and pushed to the sea. And uh, we don't know. The number might increase even more and will be much bigger than we anticipated. But just in the last minute, Ali, if the water hit buildings in the sixth and seventh floor, then yeah. the, the wall of water must have been well above 20 feet. It would be more like 40 or 50 feet. Yes, that's what people are saying, Ian. They say it's 40. Some, some now experts are saying 40. Now, I have to um, caution your listeners, Ian, that we don't know. There's no precise uh, estimate of the number of deaths, but the, the volume of the water is 40 meters. You're wow. quite right. And yeah, So we're talking about something like you know, um, uh, biblical flood of Noah <laughs> uh, uh-huh. for Libyans uh, in, that, in that sense. And uh, they had no clue that um, this is something, and it's not just usual flooding that happens every winter to, in the Valley of Derna, where it become a, a river. Uh, the only, the closest thing to this, Ian, where in 1959 there was a, a huge um, flood and uh, the the worst calamity and disaster, you know, um, happened in Libya in 1963-64 with the earthquake of the city of Marsh, which devastated the whole small city. Uh, Libya and Libyan history, modern history, I don't think I think of anything uh, come close to what we are witnessing um, uh, now and uh, the destruction of this beautiful, beautiful a, you know, wonderful city called Derna. Well, Ali Abdelatif Hamida, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, it's my pleasure and uh, good to talk to you, Ian. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Ali Abdelatif Hamida, who is a professor and founding chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of New England, whose scholarship focuses on power, agency, and anti-colonial resistance in North Africa, especially modern Libya. And he's the author of The Making of Modern Libya, Forgotten Voices, Power and Agency in Colonial and Post-Colonial Libya, and Genocide in Libya, Shah, A Hidden Colonial History. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. 
Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh, 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 oh,